Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you as we continue our series, The Nation's Rage. We've been thinking the first few weeks about what God's reign looks like, and we're going to zoom in on a more specific, more concrete part of that as we turn to the messianic prophecies we find in this psalm. Here we are in the second psalm, the, the second song in that hymn book of Israel. What do we find in it? It's a foretelling of Jesus, and that's what we're going to be getting into tonight. So as we think about that, let's go ahead and come before our God and ask him to help us to see everything that was promised here and how those promises apply to us in our life today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of your word, your word that is always true and always relevant. It, it, it stays not only true in some distant sense, but stays true in the sense that it speaks to the very things that we need to know about that are true today. And Lord, as we look at this psalm, would you encourage us in everything that we face, that we would know that the same one who was foretold to reign in this second psalm is the one who reigns today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one problem that we can have as, as humans is the sense that maybe we believe there's a God, but he feels very distant. Maybe we believe there's even an all-powerful God, maybe even a loving God, but what does that really mean day to day? Even if he's in control, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, what does that really mean? Does that mean that in the end, in, in some grand scheme, God is in control, but in the moment in our lives, it doesn't really have any relevance to what we're experiencing, that God maybe is even unaware of us? We're just some number, in a, some cog in a machine? I believe this psalm is meant to help us to see that that's not the case. Because it's going to point us not just to God's overall sheer power, but how God came into the world and took that power into the world as the Messiah. Even though he's in control in some cosmic sense, some mind-boggling sense, he's also in control in the very present, very human way of the Incarnation. So when we think, well, how can I know if God's winning? How can I know if God cares? The Bible always points us back to Jesus. His reign is already and is coming more concretely still. It was promised in, in Psalm 2. It was promised throughout the Old Testament. It was felt more fully when Jesus walked the first time on this earth. But he's coming again. It seems kind of appropriate that we arrive in this spot this week. There's been all kinds of news on the monarchy, of course, mourning the loss of Queen Elizabeth. And, and I think even for those of us here, most of us, I think, probably gathered tonight are Americans. We we don't have a monarch, and yet I think much of the world sort of felt like Queen Elizabeth was our monarch in some sense, because she just was stable and, and present and reassuring. She spoke of her faith. That was certainly encouraging for us as Christians. But she was just there. Many, if not most of us watching tonight, have never known a, a period in our lives where Queen Elizabeth wasn't the Queen of England. And, and so there was just this this institution of a person who though in, in a modern sense of a monarchy doesn't have a whole lot of, of worldly power, in a sense it also exerted a great deal of power through her influence. So we've been thinking a lot about monarchies this week, and probably most of us, especially Americans, are, 
are listening to the news or reading the news and learning a lot more about how it works than, than we normally think about or have ever even needed to think about because Queen Elizabeth was already queen long before us. And, and what what an interesting change and what a disturbing change in a way because here was something stable and it's gone. Kings come and go, queens come and go, but Jesus continues to reign. And so that's where it's so encouraging when we continue in this psalm. We turn to Psalm 2, verse 7. Jesus is not just the king. He's the perfect king. Let's go ahead and take a look. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, Let's start with the question, the obvious question this raises. If we take this as we should, that this I here is the Messiah, because we've we've heard about the Messiah, we've heard about the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2. Now we are hearing from the anointed one himself speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does that say about Jesus's existence? See, Alexa even wants to know about that. And Alexa, never mind. Uh, you know, we all want to know answers to questions. We have these smart assistants around trying to answer those questions for us, and usually they don't. But we want to know difficult answers to questions about control in our lives. And, and in the sense, when we talk about Jesus, it's very comforting. And then we get to a point like this, and we think, well, I'm not so sure it feels so comforting, because today I've begotten you. Does that mean that Jesus didn't always exist, that, that Jesus is simply another king? In the normal sense. What does it mean today I have begotten you? Is Jesus really in charge forever? Or, or was there a time when he was not? And, and certainly there are those who have opposed the Christian message, uh, taken some weird distorted form of it, and argued that there was a time when Jesus was not, that, that Jesus isn't truly fully God. And in that, there's a very disquieting answer, it would seem. He's not really fully in control then. If there's a time that he was not, then God didn't really walk on this earth because God is always. He's been forever. So that means that Jesus isn't God, it would seem. But of course, the answer is that's all wrong. The, the, and including this misinterpretation of a passage like this. Was there a time when Jesus wasn't? No. Jesus was always. And we see that over and over again in Scripture. For example, Hebrews 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 10, if we turn there, we'd see that everything was created for Jesus and by Jesus. We see that, of course, in the Gospel of John as well. We see that over and over again in Scripture. There wasn't a time where he wasn't, to use a double negative. So if there wasn't a time when he wasn't, what does it mean to say, today I have begotten you? Well, I think in a way it's essentially expressing a very monarchical thing, a very kingly thing. And one of those things that we're starting to filter through as we learn what does it mean now that the, the queen has passed and now there's King Charles III. He's already King Charles III. He was King Charles III immediately upon his mother's death. And, and now he, the over the weekend, he was declared King Charles III officially by by this council that was formed specifically to do that. Although on top of that, and this is something I didn't realize, the actual coronation where he re he's ceremonially made king isn't going to come for quite some time still. Apparently in Queen Elizabeth's case, 
that coronation didn't occur until after 16 months had passed since she'd become queen. So she always was the heir to the throne. Well, not always, but she had been for quite some time. Then she was queen, and then she was coronated as queen. And now we're seeing this with with King Charles, that he's king, and yet he's going to somehow be made king. Now, this is all in a very human sense. It's fluid, right? Someone might die. The line of succession might change. But, but when we're thinking about the king of all the universe, there's still something to this. God is choosing to reveal his power in a way that makes sense to, to humans and how human leaders have worked over the ages. And, and so God the Father establishes God the Son as king over the earth, even though Jesus has always been in control. And that's what we see when we really think about the picture of Scripture. Jesus existed from the beginning. We're told that all things were made through him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Gospel of John, chapter 1. And yet he was incarnate. He, he came into the world. He was born into the world in the line of David. So taking up that promise of the eternal king. And then... We see, in a sense, sort of like we hear about various nobility being created, that is their name to the title that they're going to possess. We see something of that when he's baptized in Matthew chapter 3. Take a look at verse 17. It says, During this baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's a sense here that in in a earthly power sort of way, God the Father now is declaring, okay, this ceremony has taken place. Now Jesus can be known as my son. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't already his son. And we see that even in the gospel narratives as as the birth of Christ occurs. And yet now somehow it's even more concrete. That baptism in, in some sense could be seen as a coronation. Another place that could be seen as a coronation of Jesus is in his death and resurrection. We see that alluded to in Acts chapter 13. It says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So we see that... For the apostles, as they went around preaching in Acts, as the New Testament church is being formed, they looked at the resurrection essentially as the fulfillment of what we see here in Psalm 2. There's a sense in which Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he is fulfilling those promises of the Messiah, and yet the, the actual conquest hasn't begun yet. That's not entirely true. Satan's already opposed Jesus, and, and in teaching of the kingdom, Jesus is moving his kingdom forward, but But in dying and taking on our sin and then triumphing over death, then we see the real action that's been promised. And so as the disciples look back on that, they see that as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. 
there's a sense in which that coronation takes place. Now the real action takes place because Jesus's kingdom, the church, is being sent out to go do its work in this world. And in that we see how Jesus differs from earthly kings. Do you recognize this picture? Unless you are really, really interested in the history of kings in the world, I'm betting you don't recognize this picture. You see, this man here is Louis the Nineteenth, and you might be thinking, Louis the Nineteenth. Who's Louis the Nineteenth? Well, Louis the Nineteenth was a king of France, but you probably haven't heard much about him because he was king of France for all of about twenty minutes. After his father was forced to abdicate the throne in 1830, he waited a little while. Different reports say exactly why he was waiting, whether it was his own refusal to abdicate along with his father or if his wife was begging him not to abdicate. But in any case, he abdicated the throne after about 20 minutes. And so some people don't even say he legitimately ever was king, but in some sense, he was king for 20 minutes, making him the shortest reigned monarch in world history. After that, he he fled to Scotland because he couldn't stay where he'd just been forced to, to abdicate the throne. And, and then the emperor of the Austrian Empire invited him over to a, a nice castle over in the Austrian Empire. And so he and his family moved there only to be booted out four years later after that emperor died. And the next emperor wanted to have his coronation ceremony in that castle. He was rejected. And so, yes, he was king, but it, it really seemed kind of useless. And in fact, I, I'd imagine if you ever had aspirations of being a king, there'd be little worse than being booted from castle to castle because no one really wants you or knows what to do with you. Just having the title king doesn't really matter. What matters is you have the power of being king. A king who's only king for 20 minutes and then for years afterwards certain loyalists still call you king but you have no power and no hope of ever returning to the throne isn't much of a king. But the king we read about in Psalm 2 is the victorious king. Jesus isn't just the perfect king in some abstract sense. Jesus is the perfect victor. And that's what we see as we turn to verse 8. Psalm goes on, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we have described not just someone who's been named king, that, that whole begotten as son language could be taken as coronation language. Often kings were referred to the sons of, of whatever god they served. So there's royal type language there. And of course, in Jesus's case, we know it goes deeper than that. But you have all that, you have those promises, but you have more here. You also have that Jesus is going to have control over the nations, that, that he will actually rule the nations. That there can be rebellion against him, but it's not going to succeed. We've been thinking about why do the nations rage? But here we're told that this Messiah is going to have an iron rod. He's going to rule as the one in control. When we've been thinking about the nations raging against God, the, the psalm starts to clarify here. What we're really thinking about is the nations raging against the Messiah. Now, sure, they've been raging against God for all time, and we continue to rage against God. But when we're thinking about the, the one who is being described here, it starts to make more sense. 
because for as long as God was primarily working in this little nation of Israel, a lot of times the nations weren't even bothering to rage against God, at least in a very direct sense, because they didn't even hear anything about him. They didn't understand who he was. But once the Messiah came and, and the message of the Messiah came, the nations would be confronted directly with the gospel. They'd have to decide what they were going to do. What were they going to do with Jesus? It couldn't be something that was just tucked away in some little corner of the Middle East. No, it was something that the whole world was going to have to confront. And that's what the disciples realized as they went and preached the message of the gospel. Take a look at Acts chapter 4. Who through the mouth, that is God, the Holy Spirit speaking, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord's anointed and against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, there's a connection formed here now that this raging of the nations is manifest in the opposition to Jesus. That this isn't just about opposing God in some abstract form. Yeah, there's a God who's over the whole universe and he's in control, and as long as we're not doing his will that we're raging against him. It's more than that. And we see that hinted at in verse 3 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Take a look once again. Here's what the nations say. Here's what we say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Not God's cord singular, but their cords. In other words, the Lord and his anointed, the Father and the Son. And so we see this remarkable sense here that speaks to how the Messiah is more than just the earthly king. The actual opposition of the, towards the Lord is also the opposition to the king, because the king is the Lord. Jesus talks about this sort of opposition and how it would occur when he told parables. For example, there's the parable of, of the minas in Luke chapter 19. That we are some, It's also called the parable of the talents. appears in the Synoptic Gospels, and... and we're very familiar with part of it. We More than likely, we've maybe even wrestled with, well, where do we fall into it? It's that story of, of the person who's given ten minas and another that's given five, and the one that's given one who's ultimately punished as being wicked because he buried that one mina that he had. And we look at that and we, we stop there, but it's, it's notable that we're told that this is all occurring in the context of, of one who has come, a prince who has come, and he's going to come back and not just deal with that part of the parable that we usually think about, but he's going to come to those who say, let's just ignore this and let's overthrow him, let's kill him. We don't want anything to do with him. And so there's a challenge there, of course, what are we going to do with the gifts that God's given us? But Jesus was also saying, in this kingdom, it's not going to simply be, are you going to do what do a lot with the talents, the abilities, the, the gifts that I give you or not, it's also saying there are going to be some people who don't even want anything to do with it, who just say, we, we, we want to have a coup. We want to get rid of the king entirely. Jesus expected this. He didn't expect everyone to hail him as king and say, oh, this is wonderful. And why not? 
Why, why would people oppose him? Because we're looking for an earthly king. We're looking for a king who's going to advance our earthly causes. And, and yet Jesus said time and again that his kingdom was different. When Pilate confronted Jesus and said, don't you realize I have power? Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this world and you only have your power because my father gave it to you. And, and so it is that we have to be reminded time and again that, that the battle for the kingdom of God is not the sort of battle that we are normally prepared to fight. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, Paul says here, it's just like what Melanie was reminding us in, in our Psalms readings for this weekend. Our battle isn't a physical battle. It's not a battle against enemies like we normally think about. It's a battle against the spiritual forces. And here's, here Paul's describing it, describing those forces that oppose God's kingdom as a stronghold those who, who are shoring up against the onslaught of the Messiah. And what is that really de de describing there? Well, certainly spiritual forces, but not only those spiritual forces, but the ideas that they then give us. Satan and, and his forces love nothing more than to give us so-called reasonable arguments against the Messiah and his rule or some part thereof. Even as believers, we can start to hold on to ideas that become strongholds against God's kingdom because we think that we've worked everything out, and so we won't actually let God's word probe that part of our mind and our ideas. But what are we called to do? We're called to abandon those strongholds and to help others abandon those strongholds. That's what Paul's talking about there, trying to defeat those sorts of opinions that oppose God's kingdom and point instead to the, the truth, the hope that we have in Christ. That's what we're really called to do as Christians is is to help people understand who Jesus is. Not to take an earthly sort of power. Not to, to fight against earthly forces in an earthly way. Paul says explicitly we shouldn't do that because we get drawn in then and we just become other earthly forces. Oftentimes when we do that, we actually end up becoming enemies of the kingdom, at least in how we're acting. We're not helping people to understand who Jesus is. Now, someday Jesus is going to reign in a fully manifest way, in, in, in the sense that, yeah, all the earthly forces will be subdued to him as well. It's no mistake that this picture of, of ruling with an iron rod is a, a reference that appears over and over again in Revelations that talks about Jesus. Someday he will rule concretely. No one will doubt his rule. But in this moment, in our time as the church, what are we called to do? We're not called to, to have earthly armies. We're not called to seek earthly power. We're not called to use the ways of the world to take over the world. What are we called to do? We're called to preach the gospel. That's what the disciples understood as both their calling and where that rebellion and that opposition would come in. They, they, they didn't go into the land and try to see if they could overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the Christian kingdom. No, they preached the gospel. And the opposition they faced was spiritual opposition. People building those strongholds that opposed what the gospel said about grace, about, about freedom from sin, about hope in the resurrection. Jesus is going to be 
truly manifest in such a way that no one will mistake his victory someday. But we need to understand where we are in that. We're somewhere in between the different parts of that, that ceremonial establishment of what's already true about him. But we can rest in that. We can rest in the fact that we're not called to have the worldly power that we might want by the fact that Jesus is totally victorious. And that's what we're reminded of at the end of verse 9. Notice again it says that the one with the iron rod will dash his, his enemies, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's an image that was actually part of certain Near Eastern coronation ceremonies. For example, when a new Egyptian pharaoh would take control, he would actually have the names of his enemies on pottery and would take a a staff or a rod and break them to symbolize how he was now in control over his enemies. So this was a familiar image, and it was saying that that those who oppose Jesus, someday they will shatter as as easily as pieces of, of pottery. There's no doubt about Jesus's victory. What we need to understand, though, is where we are in that victory and do the part that he's called us to do. That's what you do when you're following a king. When you you say, this person is the one who is leading and I I want to honor him and respect him, you don't say, but I'm going to do it my own way. No, you follow what his orders are. Jesus has called us as his people to do certain things. And and the goal there is to bring more people into his kingdom. Not to, to humiliate those that, oppose him? Because sometimes I think when when we think about victory, we think about uh, we're going to see the utter humiliation of those who oppose him and sort of oppose us as as Christians. Uh, I'm going to outsmart them in my arguments and make them feel really dumb. I'm going to post a better meme than they post. I'm going to have, have a more successful career because I'm living as God has called me to do and everything's going to go well. And they're going to say, oh boy, I, I guess I'm stupid. A lot of times that's what we think of as victory. But God thinks of victory as this, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And what we're called to do is to help more people experience that in this life so that they actually are part of God's people. They're not just doing it at the end of time when, when there's no doubt, but they're doing it now and experiencing being part of God's family. We need to ask ourselves the question, is my goal to humiliate my enemies, God's enemies, something like that? Or is it to seek restoration? I've been struck this week, I'm sure... Many of you have been following some of the news of the the changes, and it could be changing again even in the next few days, and it could go different ways, but the changes in the Ukrainian war. And, and one thing that really struck me are the pictures that have been coming out of the different cities that uh, are being liberated. And, and when the Russians came in and invaded, they went through, and it seems like a lot of Ukrainian cities, I don't know the story behind these signs, but a lot of cities have signs like this, And they were painted in Ukrainian colors. And when the Russian soldiers came in, they defaced them by painting them with Russian colors instead, as you can see the colors of the Russian flag on on that sign. But then signs like this are being repainted. And that's the the thing that we're seeing this week. As the Ukrainian army comes back in, they're, they're restoring them to the colors that symbolize they're under the proper rule. They're under the rule of the one of the country that has the sovereign borders that they're in. Here's the problem often in our lives. We go from outright rebellion to God to following God, and yet we're still trying to paint our colors over the signs that God has up. We're painting, out, we're painting colors that represent our rule, and we're still defacing those signs. 
But one thing that you see here that's beautiful is these signs are being repainted. It's a little thing. It doesn't really change anything. And yet it speaks to the restoration that's occurring in this country that is, again, in proper rule. And our calling as Christians is to take down the defacing that often we've done ourselves and we as human beings do and to paint God's colors back upon it. That's what he's called us to do, to break down those strongholds, to help people understand his kingdom. We don't need to go in and and blow up those signs so they can't be restored. No, we restore them. We are agents of restoration. And we're that because we understand that Jesus is the one who's victorious and is bringing God's reign to us, the one that we have confidence in. Take a look at what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2. He says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see that that reminder that we referenced at the beginning of of Jesus being eternal, we're reminded is tied directly to his work in the moment, how he came into the world, how he walked as a human being, and how he achieved his victory for us. They brought his reign to us. It's not some abstract thing, but something we can experience because it's there, because we can experience it. We can go and we can paint God's colors, knowing that he is in control and that he will bring all things under his reign. Would you join me in prayer? Father, would you forgive us for the times that we try to bring things under our control? That even in thinking we're somehow standing up for you, we we actually are doing further defacing of your creation, of your people. Lord, would you help us to be so confident in the victory that we have in Jesus that that we can go and, and listen to what he's called us to do that we can go with the power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that he is with us. We don't have to do things the earthly way, but we can know that that our king reigns. Our king isn't a 20-minute king. Our king isn't a two-year king. Our king isn't a 70-year monarch. Our king is a forever monarch, from forever to forever. So what he says is good and true that his full victory, that your victory, that all will proclaim the God of the universe someday. And Lord, would you help us to feel that peace that you are in control right now and to share that peace, breaking down the strongholds that oppose it. For those around us, they might experience that peace too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. And if it was, consider sharing it. Maybe, as people are talking a lot about monarchs right now, it's a great time to help people think about who the true king is. It doesn't feel quite as distant when we're, when it's on all the news and everyone's talking about it. It might be a great time for someone who's been struggling to understand all this Messiah stuff to, to understand it actually applies to him or to her. So please consider sharing it on Facebook or, or sharing the YouTube link, posting on Twitter, emailing it, giving someone a call and saying, come over and watch it with me helping someone to understand the hope that we have in the gospel. Next week, we'll be be thinking about 
what the proper response to the Messiah is. And we've talked a little bit about that today on thinking about how we have peace in the Messiah, but we're going to see the grand culmination of this psalm next week. So I hope that you'll join me at 7 p.m. on Monday night for that. In the meantime, I hope you'll join us on Sunday. We are in the midst of our new series, The Kingdom Now, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and and Jesus talking about, here's what it looks like to be my people, to go and, and live out my reign in the world. And so as we think about, well, how do I break down those strongholds? Jesus actually tells us. Let's go think about that together and join us, if you can, in person at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday nights or join our wonderful online community at the same time. We'll be live streaming as always. If there's any way I can be praying for you this week, answer any questions you have, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen or leave a comment in the comments below. It's always wonderful to hear from you. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week and I hope to see you again very soon.